Hi, folks, it's just Mikey here. Now, now Paul's back in the UK, which gives us a chance to dig around in the back catalogue. And if you're a new listener, don't forget, there's almost 70 episodes. Just go back and check them out. But today, I want to look at one of my favourites. It was something I didn't really know about before. Paul's going to explain to us the Empire of the Kushans. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson... Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the (laughs) cock-ups. Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. G'day, folks, and welcome to Season 4. But hey, We've made it to Season 4. This is, this is fantastic. Now, we're going to be looking at civilizations, and I've got to admit, the one we're talking about today, I was, I'm going to be honest here, I wasn't aware of until I first met you, and then you, you, know, then you told me about them. They're really quite fascinating. That's right, yeah. We're talking about the Kushans and a guy called Kanishka. Now, when I first heard Kushans, I thought, look, are they some sort of multi-billion dollar social media influence family or, or a psychedelic band from the 70s I'd forgotten about. <laughs> but you're right, mate. They are one of the great, well, I'm going to say forgotten cultures in, mm-hmm. in global history. Now, it's all to do with the Silk Roads, right? That's right. The beginnings of the Silk Roads. Now, obviously, um, in previous seasons, we looked at Marco Polo and the Mongols, the end of the Silk Roads. But here, we're going right back to the beginning, Mike. We're talking, you know, basically the time of Christ, you know, first, second centuries, AD. Um, and if you look here, um, you'll be very pleased to see I've already got a map in for you. Hey, I can't believe this. We're out of lockdown. We're not even five seconds into the new season and you've got a map out. Okay, mate, show me the map. All right, so look at this map here. This is the map of Eurasia, which right. is the whole landmass, you know, from you know, Portugal, uh, Spain on one side, right through to Korean Peninsula, you know, Vladivostok on the other. Um, and this map actually comes from the 19th century from Britain and it shows these three great empires. You know, obviously, you've got the Romans here. You've got, on the other side, you've got the Han Chinese. And then here, you've got the Parthians. Now, those of you who have been listening to the VR series will know that the Parthians, we're talking about Mark Anthony, his expansion into North Africa, but particularly east into Persia. That's right, yeah. So they took over the Persian Empire. They're the big rivals um, around Mark Antony's time. Um, but as you can see here... It also leaves... Uh, mate, there's a big blank bit in the middle. So this is a Victorian map talking about ancient empires. So how come there's a big blank bit, a gap in the middle? Well, that's it. Is that gap really a gap? Or that's what I wanted to talk about today, because as you can see, the whole landmass is essentially what becomes the Silk Roads network um, as we go on into history. Look, we all know that the Silk Roads were more than just trade. Mm. But, you know, trade is involved. So let's get that out of the way first. So were these empires trading? Yes, of course they were. But the difference is it's being limited to more regional trade, you see. So, yes, you've got the Mediterranean. Yes, you've got Persia, the Fertile Crescent, after Alexander the Great. And, yes, over here, Mikey, you've got what we call the VL route, which is the old route between the Ganges and the Indus Valleys up through into Central Asia. Yeah, but also, too, mate, we've got to be looking at sea trade as well. Now, is that regionalised in the same way? Well, look, it's getting longer distance. Sure, the the monsoon trade winds, they've been harnessed, and they can travel farther afield. But at this stage, sea trade is still very expensive, 
and of course very dangerous. You know, you've got the sea, the weather itself, and you've got pirates, this kind of thing. So yes, you can see the Romans are coming out here through the Red Sea, past the Horn of Africa. You've got a great other empire, actually, they're called the Aksumites at this time. They're doing a lot of trade. They're, they're Arabian, right, aren't they? Well, Arabian um, Horn of Africa, yeah, right. that's right. And they're getting across the sea, but they're only getting as far as the West coast of India because you, know, you can't really talk about an Indian Ocean at this stage. It's still very much seas and that Arabian Sea there is the extent to which they go because on the other side of India over here, you've got a completely separate network, you know, for China, the East Indies, all these islands and they go to the east coast of India, but never the twain will meet. So, mate, what you're saying is if you want real trade going all the way east to west, land is your best bet. Right. But that's not to say there aren't obstacles. You've got all these deserts here, like the Taklavakan, the Gobi, the Karakum. You've got, and of course, you've got the massive mountain ranges. Yeah, they are the natural stoppages, the natural blockages, if you like, the Himalayas separating north from south. Then you've got the Tian Shan, the Karakorum separating east from west. Yeah, but nevertheless, mate, you've got these frontiers rubbing up against each other. And now, if we know anything about human history, when frontiers rub up against each other, there are opportunities. They provide opportunities, exactly. You know, whether it's a cultural border, you know, where you can exchange ideas or knowledge, or if it's a you know, geographic climatic uh, frontier where you'll, you'll exchange the goods, for example, I don't know, furs and horses and skins from the north, you know, coming down from the steppe, and they're going to swap them for the spices and uh, various yummy things from the east. fruits from the south, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And of course, you know, being the largest landmass in the world, Asia, Eurasia, they're going to provide the greatest opportunities if you can unlock them. So, mate, from what you're saying, what they needed was a middleman to plug that gap, someone who could use that bit to their advantage. Now, I'm going to make a guess here. Was that middleman your... That's right, Mikey. That's my people. People that have gone down in history as the Kushans. Okay, mate, some background. Who, who are they? Uh, do they come from the nomadic steppes? Yes, okay. So ancestrally, yeah, they are nomadic steppe people, but they've become, by this stage, sedentarized. They've taken over the cities that have been left behind by Alexander the Great, by the Persians, these people. So their great advantage is that they've actually got a foot in both camps. They've managed to cross the divide. I was like the same, as you mentioned centuries before, the Parthians had taken over from Persia. That's right. So the Parthians were originally nomadic steppe people, and they've come down and taken over the great cities of the Fertile Crescent. But the difference is for the Kushans, it's not just a question of crossing from north to south. Now, their position, because they're right here in the middle, right in this gap, Mikey, if they can succeed, they can link north, south, East and West. Yeah, they can link to China, they can link to the Mediterranean world, they can link down to India, they can link right up to the wild steppes and forests of what's modern day Russia. I mean, you're not talking about that they were moving up there to claim land, but they were trading up there. Now, I want to clear one thing up, mate. We've mentioned where they are. If I'm looking at a modern map, where am I looking at to find where the Kushans had their, their base of power? You're looking at Afghanistan and Tajikistan, right in the middle of the middle, Mike, in the middle of Central Asia. And if you remember from earlier reps, it's that land which in ancient times was known as Bactria, where Alexander the Great's famous wife, Roxane, came from. So in terms of positioning, this has to be the potential of being position A. Now, if there's one thing we know from history, a great empire at some stage is going to have a great leader. That's right, Mikey. Every season we've had them, and today's no different. Today's hero is a guy called Kanishka. Kanishka I, also known as Kanishka the Great. <laughs> 
Okay, so today we're talking about the Kushans, who are nomads from the central steppes of Asia, but they end up with an empire, they end up setting up the Silk Road, but yet somehow history has practically forgotten them. Well, that's exactly right, Mikey. As you say, they are nomads, and nomads traditionally, unfortunately, have been very much pushed to the outer edges. You know, they're always seen as barbarians, like we talked about in mm. the Attila the Hun episode, where in actual fact... The steppe people, people like the Scythians from the Bronze Age, from the Iron Age, they've actually been critical in the development of what we call civilization. For example, you know, they've invented the chariot. Now, hang on, mate. I'm going to pick... Uh, seriously, because we, we were taught at school that the chariot came from ancient Egypt. The Egyptians invented the war chariot. Right. Before it even got to the Egyptians, it actually went through Persia. Um, but these guys were very much the first ones back in the Bronze Age because they were the first people to domesticate the horse. Uh-huh. And then they were the first people to invent the spoked wheel, um, which obviously you need for your chariot. Otherwise, the wheel's too heavy and you can't build a chariot around it. That's right. And, of course, uh, stirrups as well. They invented those. Even trousers. Your hey! mate, <laughs> mate Honorius from the Roman episode. It's a throwback uh, to old ep, yep. Yeah, the, the uh, trousers were created so that you could ride the horse more easily. Now, mate, when we talk about your guys, the Kushan's ancestry... I'm assuming it's going to be a little complicated. Yes, that's right. The Kushans are steppe people, but they're not Scythians. They're different. Their ancestors are a tribe we know as the UAZ. Now, they're Indo-European, they're nomadic, like we said. But what's happened to them is they've actually ended up wandering east, away from the steppes, towards China. And by the 2nd and 1st century BC, they've established their base in the Tarim Basin, um, next to the Gansu corridor, which, you know, looking at this map again, mate, you can see... Because today we'd call that China, but going back to the first, second century BC, it's much more part of the Central Asian world, completely separate, exactly. Now, the UAZ, they lived there for, you know, 100, 200 years, and they create a very substantial sort of mini-empire of their own. But what happened to them, mate? But unfortunately, they get defeated by their great rivals, the other nomadic power, the Xiongnu, um, and the Xiongnu pushed them all the way back, back through the Taklamakan Desert, back through the Taran Basin. And unfortunately, this time, they can't go back to where they first came from, to the steppes, because now you've got another mini-empire of steppe nomads called the Wu Sun. And unfortunately, although some of them do stay in the Taran Basin, the main body are pushed west even further. So where do they go, mate, these people who eventually become the Kushans? Well, that's it. They go over the Great Divide. They go over all these mountains. Now, not the Himalaya, because no. they are too high, too cold to the south. But I'm talking about the Karakoram and the Tian Shan, what divided, traditionally divided east from west in Asia. So what we're talking about is basically modern-day Afghanistan. That's right, Afghanistan and Tajikistan. Like we were saying before, what was known as Bakhtu in ancient times. But, right, but what had been a powerful, rich kingdom following the collapse of Alexander's empire, it's in turmoil and the whole territory is splintered. It's broken up into this patchwork of rival tribes and factions. You know, you've got the Saka, who are sort of nomadic as well. You've got the Parthians coming in and out. You've got the Indian Morayan um, dynasty coming up. So you've got these Greco-Bactrian kingdoms, Greco-Saka kingdoms, Indo-Parthian kingdoms, Indo-Saka kingdoms. Like I said, a complete mess. So I'm assuming at this point in time, we're looking for a leader to arrive. And we're talking about your bloke. Well, no, it's not Kanishka just yet. It's actually his great-grandfather, who's a guy called Kajula Kadfizis. He's the guy who sets up the Kushans. And so what time period are we talking about here, mate? He comes to power in 50 AD, which, to give you an idea, is like sort of Claudius. This Nero was in Rome. So right about that same, same period of time. That's right. So he creates the power base that's going to become the empire. 
Um, and him and his son, his grandson, Vima Kadfizis, they grow and they get stronger. They unite all those different factions, the Grecos, the Bactrians, the Saka. They put them together into one cohesive unit, which from the outside looks pretty much like the old state of Bactria. But the difference is, and this is why it's so special, this territory, the so-called gap on the old colonial maps, for the first time ever, Mikey, in the history of Eurasia, is being ruled by someone who's got links over these big mountains and onwards to all the great trading markets of the East. Before that, everything's always come from the West. And that's when your man Kanishka comes in. That's it. So Kanishka, he's the great-grandson, and in 127 AD, he becomes king, and he's a king for 20 to 25 years. So was he a, a great warrior like Alexander the Great? Well, that's the interesting thing, Mikey. He, in fact, the evidence suggests that he rarely enters into disputes, let alone wars. Yeah, he's born down in Peshawar, modern northern Pakistan. But what he manages to do is set aside the regional rivalries, pick the best bits from the mosaic, if you like, put them together, piece them together into this enormous syncretic empire. Okay, you say enormous, Paulie. So how big are we talking? <laughs> okay, well, have a look at this other map I brought along, Mikey. And you can see from that, it's actually as big as the Parthian Empire next door. This bit... What's basically the eastern half of modern-day Afghanistan. Right, this is still the heart, but in the north, they're going into the Fergana Valley, Uzbekistan. To the east, they go over the Tian Shan Mountains into the Taran Basin, what's modern-day Xinjiang province in China. And then to the south, they go over the Hindu Kush and the Karakoram into Kashmir and northern Pakistan, you know, the Indus Valley. And even to the west, Mikey, yeah, you've got the Parthian Empire comes to an end, and they've got them pushing into Iran. So what you're saying, I'm looking at the map, they're controlling territory the same size as what constituted the whole of China under the hand? Yes, depending on how you measure it, Mikey, it's almost as big as the Roman Empire. I'm glad you said depending, mate, because you've pointed out to me a few times it's not quite the same as the other empires. There's no Great Wall of China to mark a border, no Roman roads finishing at the frontier like they did in ancient Britain. No, Mikey, yeah, just as the Silk Road was, of course, <laughs> never one great big strip of tarmac running across the continent, so the empire that the Kushans built is more, you know, sphere of influence than physical markers, and they're changing and they're adapting to accommodate as they expanded, rather than, you know, try to defeat, subjugate and dictate. Yeah, so how did that actually work? Well, take the basics, like language. Are they still, because of Alexander the Great, are they still speaking Greek? Well, that's it. They adopt Greek initially, but then they actually switch to Bactrian because that's the language that most of their inhabitants are comfortable with and which they identify with. And then in farming and agriculture, they adopt Persian methods, of, you know, for example, irrigation. Oh, that's when they use the underground tunnels to transport water. That's right, the Kanats, the Karees, you see. And they're critical, Mikey, because they allow the Kushans to harness the water from these two great rivers, you know, the Amu Darya and the Sir Darya, and massively increase the amount of land fertile enough to grow crops. Rather than just strips of fields along the riverbanks. Precisely. But it's not just the economics we're talking about here, Mikey. Yes, mate, because that's one of the points you made to me when I first met you. The, the Silk Roads, I mean, it's almost a misnomer. It's not just a simple trade route. It's a network of an exchange of ideas, of culture, of technologies. That's right. You've got, for example, the art world. Yeah, you've got this great fusion between the Hellenistic and the Buddhist art to produce something that you've probably heard of, Gandharan art. Oh, yeah. And that very much symbolises what Kanishka achieves and the beginning of an era which us ancient historians call the period of the great Kushans. Mate, that's all well and good. 
But I'm going to ask you the question that people don't like to ask at dinner parties. What about religion? <laughs> yeah, no, religion. I'm glad you did bring that up, Mikey, because it's instrumental in understanding the Kushans because they would adapt and adopt all the religions that are already existent in this area. You, you Obviously, you've got Zoroastrianism, your Mazdianism coming from Persia. You've got the, the followers of Mani, Manichaeism. You've got the old Greek gods. They're still there. You know, the Bactrian gods that have come in through Alexander the Great. You've even got Hinduism coming up out of India. Yeah, and we know all this because of the coins and the frescoes that are being left by the Kushans. On these coins, you can see this massive pantheon of different gods. But, mate, you are talking the great religions of the time. What about the Buddha? Ah, yes. And that is why Kanishka is the key, because he has gone down as Kanishka the Great, particularly because of his impact on Buddhism, because he is said to have convened the great Buddhist council, the fourth great council in Kashmir. He is the one who's responsible for having the Buddhist texts being copied out, translated, disseminated across his empire, and building the monasteries for the Buddhist missionaries um, to go out and spread the word. So, mate, is that how Buddhism spreads to China? Exactly, because, you know, from northern India, you can't just go directly to China because the Himalayas are in the way. But what happens under Kanishka is that him and his merchants who are conducting the Silk Road trade, they tie in with the monasteries, with the missionaries. And in actual fact, if you go to these places, Mike, and you look at these caravanserai where... Oh, I've, I've seen pictures of them. They're like the, the big sort of semi-fort buildings where the caravans would rest overnight. That's right, exactly, where the silk caravans would be. Now, alongside these caravanserai, sometimes actually inside the same building, shrines, temples, even monasteries would be built, sponsored and paid for by the merchants themselves. So as the merchants head east... Buddhism follows them. Yeah, well, fully enough, it has to go west first, Mikey, in, into Bactria, into Central Asia. Right. But then from there, it goes through, over the top, through that desert area you can see, into Mongolia, Tibet, and, of course, China. And then you've got in 178 AD, you've got a Kushan monk, a guy called Lokaksima. He's the first person to translate the Buddhist scriptures into Chinese. And that is one translation that pretty much changes the world. A hundred percent. Now, here's the thing I really need to ask you, because as I've said before, I hadn't heard about the Kushan song until I met you. Mm. So what evidence do we have that they existed? Is it just mainly archaeological? Well, yes. Yeah, so we, as we said, yeah, you've got these Buddhist translations. We've got the Chinese written sources. But primarily, yes, Mikey, it is artifacts and archaeological remains that have held the key to understanding the Kushans, and none more so than the one we call the Kanishka casket it really does epitomize you know the kushans what they achieve and just how much they've brought the whole world together because this casket is gold casket i've got a picture here actually Mm -hmm. for you and this was discovered at the base of a stupa buddhist stupa a stupa that we think was probably about 200 meters tall covered in jewels in peshawar northern pakistan and you can see here mikey this amazing artwork in gold. I should point out too, folks, if you want to see any of this artwork, just go to At The Rest Is Hist, our our Twitter account or Facebook, and we'll be posting photos of them. Yeah, that's right, Mikey. And and this one really is special, isn't it? Because you can see here, you've got the traditional Buddhist scenes. You've also got on this side, the Iranian sun and moon gods. And if you look here at the signature, you can see it's all been made by an artist who comes from the Greek world, Agassilas. Wow. Also, too, doesn't it contain three bones of the Buddha? <laughs> yeah, well... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mate, I've said it before. If you were to put together all the bones of the Buddha that are scattered all over the world, he was about 10 foot tall. 
It's a little bit like uh, people have bits of the Berlin Wall. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> going back to going back to season one. Yeah, look, you know, they do say that three bones of the Buddha were kept in this casket. I'm, I'm not going to comment on that. But what is much more interesting for me as a historian is that you can definitely see three completely different cultures coming together in one piece. I've got to ask about anything else. Yeah, yeah there's also this thing called the Begram treasure, which they found a hoard that they dug up. It basically being in a blocked off room at the bottom of the cellar um, in a merchant's quarters. That's a little bit like the Celtic tradition of like having a hoard for safekeeping. That's right, yeah. Hopefully, you know, come back and get it later on. But unfortunately, this time they didn't, which is good for us because that means we've been left with this amazing gold jewellery, these... Indian ivory sculptures, some Roman bronze work, glassware, mirrors, Chinese lacquer. Again, it shows you just how far and wide their net had been cast in terms of goods passing through their hands. So, mate, we're talking about trade, which is obviously going to lead to economic power, but what about political leverage? Okay, well, this is what really sets the Kushans apart from most of the empires of this era because it does become a great empire and it does have great cities like Balkh, which gets the Subakay mother of a thousand cities at this stage it was so powerful you get great cities like Taxila in northern Pakistan you get Bagram in Afghanistan but the difference Mikey is it's much more of a loose confederation there's no rigid centralized control you've got regional mints you've got these different art schools um, in each area you've got different traditions for each region Man, I'm going to say this, and you know me, it's going to be a food analogy. <laughs> it reminds me a little bit of Italian pasta sauces. Now, bear with me, mate. Every region's got its own different sauce mm. and its own different pasta, but it's still Italian food. And this food has gone to take over the world. That's right, mate. And that's what allows the Kushans not just to control their own territory, but as you say, to have this sphere of cultural influence that exceeds their economic and territorial footprints. So what you're saying is the Kushans, they are key protagonists in the emergence of the silk roads. That's right. And in my opinion, the reason is because they precisely mirror the Silk Road network in as much as it, it's a synthesis of all the best and brightest that's out there. That's their ethos. And that's what ensures that their final whole is always going to be so much greater than the sum of its parts. Today we're talking about the Kushans, who, who are central to the exchange network known as the Silk Road. But what you're saying, Paulie, is they're, they're not just history's ultimate middlemen, they actually lead the way in putting the whole thing together. That's right. It's my contention that rather than just being the, you know, the lucky beneficiaries of other people's efforts, they were, in fact, the architects, the pivot, the nexus, if you like, right at the centre, who make it all happen. Then I've got to ask you, mate... Why have they been so largely forgotten? <laughs> no, no, good question, Mikey. And of course, that really is the question that we have to ask about the whole of history, isn't it? Because history itself traditionally has always been about the literary sources. And the problem with the Kushans is there are none, you, you know, none from their own culture, or at least yeah, none have survived. They may well have written stuff, but it's no longer with us. Because around about that same time in Europe and in China, you've got historians writing that we still know about today. That's right, yeah. You've you got these great Chinese annals, um, but of course they're just putting forward the Chinese point of view, which is very much that the Chinese were the instigators when it came to inventing the Silk Road. Yeah, we've also got Indian sources, yeah, but again, they're just talking about the Indian viewpoint. Yes, they mention the Kushans, but they just call them these northern barbarians who need to be driven back. And, and as you said, yeah, the, the Roman sources, yeah, we do know that the Kushans exist because they are mentioned in the text. Books like the Historia Augusta, 
but they've only been mentioned, they've been relegated effectively to the role of ambassadors, middlemen and merchants. So for the Kushans themselves, because they produce no literary body of their own, so we never get to hear their side of the story. Okay, mate, but you did mention there is some archaeological evidence. So are we just waiting for more stuff to be dug up? Well, that's it, Mikey, and it really goes back to that age-old problem that all historians have. You know, we don't really know what we don't know. And for centuries, it seemed all traces of the Kushans had been lost. But fortunately, over the last 100, 150 years, there has been some archaeological evidence dug up, and particularly the Kushan gold coins and I'm, I'm very very lucky i had us <laughs> able to spend a couple of days in the british museum in their coin collection oh you must have been over the moon mate <laughs> no it was it was a pretty good two days of my life i have to say i was actually able to handle and look and inspect each and every of the kushan gold coins in the museum it took me <laughs> a couple of afternoons and it's these gold coins that give us the critical information that we need to understand. Because, for example, it's from these coins that we know what Kanishka looked like. Oh, Kanishka, your hero for the story. That's right, yeah, Kanishka the Great. We, he's depicted on so many of these coins that we know. We know he's bearded, we know he wears a cloak, trousers, boots. And, of course, you know, from the Pantheon of the Gods that I mentioned earlier mm. on, we also know what he believed in. But the question, of course, has to be asked, you know, what other priceless artefacts are there out there, maybe to be dug up, or what key evidence has been destroyed? Because unfortunately, Mikey, we had this amazing set of frescoes not so long ago in the Kabul Museum. I know about this one. They were destroyed during the first Taliban Yeah, regime. first time round, unfortunately. Yeah, this whole set of frescoes got destroyed, and they were the frescoes that really told us so much about what Kushan day-to-day -day life looked like. And sadly, folks, no one's going to be allowed back in to find more. Well, that, not any time, you know, what I can foresee. That's right, yeah, unfortunately, you know. So, for example, we had this great inscription that they found at Rabatak, and that told us the whole genealogy of the Kushans. But you're right, the chances of finding anything as good as that in the foreseeable future is pretty remote. Actually, mate, while we're talking about current events, and I don't want to throw a fly in the ointment, but... Uh, <laughs> China's pretty big on the Silk Road right now. No, that's true. Um, and of course, you know, they would say that they were the ones, not the Kushans, who invented and you know, put the Silk Road together. Now, look, I'm not saying the Chinese didn't play a significant role. They were the ones who sent out their generals to find the heavenly horses of Central Asia. And I'm sure they're pretty happy to use bales of their silk to pay for it. But the thing, the difference between China and the Kushans, Mikey, is that the ancient Chinese emperors... They were looking at the political strategy. You know, they wanted these horses to strengthen their military prowess. They wanted to build alliances with people like the Uazi and the Kushans to ward off their greatest enemy to the north, the Xiangnu. And they weren't averse to making a pretty penny along the way. But the Kushans, their attitude was, you know, if you win... I win. Let's try and put as many links as we can in the chain. Let's bring it all together. And throw the biggest party the world's ever seen. <laughs> right. Because, of course, over the years, every man and his dog have talked about East meets West. You know, it's been bandied about. It's a classic cliche. But Kanishka the Great and these Kushans, they really did bring the whole ancient world together by providing a strong, stable state right in the middle and unprecedented links to the East because of their UAZ ancestors. And that's what allows them to offer the necessary protection and safekeeping, be it to merchants or missionaries looking to profit from these newfound opportunities. Which is why I believe they really did lay the foundations for what becomes the most important network of exchange in history.
For two centuries. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. To be fair, it, they only lasted a couple of centuries because then, of course, you know, their neighbours got greedy and started invading and it all did fall apart. But for 200 years, going back to that map, they weren't the gap in the middle that needed to be crossed with a bridge. I'm going to say that was the crossroads of the world. They were the centre. They were the architects that brought it all together. Well, there you go, folks. Uh, the Kushans and Kanishka the Great. Look, I hope you enjoyed hearing about that as, as much as I did, because I must admit, I felt very lacking in my history until you explained it to me, mate. Thank you. Thank you. All right, folks. So there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media. Same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right. And always the same handle, at The Rest Is Hist. The Rest Is Hist. And you'll find all that in the show notes. Thanks for listening. And I'll be rummaging around in the back catalogue to find another classic for next week. Mm-hmm.